0: and the USOPC in no way warrants that content of featured in Olympic Fever is accurate. Thanks for listening, and now on to the show.
1: Like I say, some days it's not quite real yet, but other days you get an email through and it's like, yes, it is. I'm going to the Olympics.
2: Mesdames et messieurs. The greatest festival of our contemporary society, the Olympic Games, is about to begin. This is going to be close. Oh, brilliant! 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 But that is an Olympic champion. Ready. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Olympic Fever, the podcast for Olympics fans. I am your host, Jarris, joined as always by my lovely co-host, Allison Brown. Allison, hello. How are you today?
3: I am especially proud of my last name today.
2: Yes, you found a cousin.
3: I found a long-lost cousin that I adore.
2: Yes, we are so excited. We are talking archery today with Hannah Brown. Hannah was recently named the chair of judges for the Tokyo 2020 Archery Tournament, and we talked with her about what archery officials do. Take a listen. Hannah, thank you so much for joining us. First off, tell us how an archery tournament at the olympics is organized how many judges you need and what each judge is responsible for
1: okay so i have a team there's myself as the chair of judges Um, i have a deputy chair of judges who is my right hand assistant i've got a director of shooting who controls all the timing and all the shooting on the field of play and then i've got a team of about 12 judges who either run the line which is the end of the shooting area where the athletes are and where they shoot from or they're at the target where they're responsible for the tournament uh, shoot, no, no, responsible for scoring the arrows, and ultimately the results of the matches. How many archers are
3: shooting at the same time?
1: So in qualification, we divide them up into the women's recurve and the men's recurve, so that we've got the two groups shooting, and there's 64 of each category shooting. So we'd have 64 on the field for the qualification or the ranking round, the qualification round. And then when we have the matches, they're done one at a time. So individuals, we have two athletes on the field of play, so one versus the other. Um, If it's a team round, we will have three in each team, so we'd have six athletes out there. And if we have the mixed team, which is new for the Tokyo 2020 Olympics, we have two from each team, one male, one female from from each team. Because
3: when you first said that you had 12 members of your team, I was like, oh, that seems like a lot. But then if you say there are 24... athletes on the field at the same time 12 doesn't seem like much to keep track of everything
1: well we've got we have the the qualification ranking round we have 64 athletes on the field and we have 32 targets so the judges are split up into teams to to monitor a number of targets each and then during the matches i'll have one judge on the line um, making sure that the athletes complete compete within the relevant time limits and then i'll have a judge at the target end responsible for all the scoring and um, because of the intensity of it we rotate the judges so that they do a match on a match off and then uh, can come back on fully concentrating
2: how long does a match usually last well what we do is we
1: shoot we're shooting sets so each set can be up to five ends and they've got they work on about a minute and uh, a minute for each athlete to shoot their three arrows so we're usually looking at about 12 to 15 minutes a match
2: okay so when a judge is looking at the line, what are they looking for?
1: So the judges on the line, running the line, they're, they're making sure that the, the athletes shoot within the time scale. They don't shoot out of time, that they shoot at their correct time, that they're in the right place at the right time, that they approach the line at the right time. And just they're responsible for, for making sure that all of the timing elements are correct. Uh, when we've got a team team round, that judge also has the responsibility of making sure that the athletes don't cross the, what we call the one meter line too early. Um, and if they do, they, they penalize the team with a yellow card and a time penalty. They make sure that when the athletes cross that line, um, all their arrows are in their quiver because they have to, that's, that's part of the rules. All the arrows have to be in the quiver when they cross that line. So that judge is responsible for that. And again, if the, if the athletes take the arrow out too early, they, they give them a time penalty for that because that's, but the, the whole team round is timed and the amount of time they've got to shoot their arrows is restricted. So it, was, it becomes a time penalty if they if they don't um, abide by the rules that are set down. So that one metre line is
3: entering the area where the archer stands. It's not yeah, the, so if you, if,
1: okay. If, if I explain the podium for you, what we've got is when you go onto the podium, you've got, you've got, it's divided into two halves. So one half for one athlete or a team or one half and one half for the other. For the team round, as you look towards the target, you see a one-metre line, and that's one metre behind the shooting line. Now, the athletes stand on the shooting line to shoot, but that one-metre line is where the rest of the team have to wait while their teammate is on the line and is shooting. Um, And that's where the judge is watching the crossings and the crossing with the feet, crossing with the arrows, to make sure that they're crossing at the right time and they're not crossing too early.
0: And then as you look
1: down the field... There's, we've got what we call our three-meter line. So there's a three-meter line where if athletes drop an arrow or an arrow comes out of the bow, if it lands within that area its class as not being shot, anything beyond that is a shot arrow, and it will be scored. Okay, so
3: like if I attempted to shoot an arrow, it would just fall on the ground and they wouldn't count it.
1: Yeah, if it's within that three-meter line, yeah, it doesn't count. So if it's fallen out of the bow or if something happens and it, and it drops, As long as it's within that three metre line, it's not classed as being shot, and uh, they get to to carry on shooting. Do over, do over.
2: Do you have many at the upper levels where you you get to do those do overs? Occasionally, occasionally we do, but not not so often.
1: Sometimes something happens and they just drop the arrow down and start again. But um, occasionally something it will it will pop out of the bow, it will pop out, it will drop off the string. And it lands in there or sometimes you'll you, if you watch the archery you'll see the athletes what we that they, they come down which is where they've got the bow pulled but they decide they don't want to shoot it so they start again and sometimes as they come down the arrow can fall off and of course see, that's not shot it's landed within the three meter line they can carry on and shoot another one um, in their prescribed time
2: so when they're done with the end and then the scoring judges look at the targets what happens if you've got an arrow that falls on a line on the line
1: in the target face, um, mm-hmm. providing it's touching the line, it scores the highest value. So
2: okay. if
1: it's if it's on the line between the nine and the ten, it scores the ten. And and that's where our judges come in because if it's not clear um, for the for the people doing the spotting, um, our judges come in with a magnifying glass and they'll look at that arrow to make sure they get the correct
2: score on it. Are there sometimes where it's the arrow has to be the closest to the center to win?
1: Yep. When we, when we have a shoot-off, so for the recurve, which is what we're using in the Olympics, they shoot their sets, and if we get to a score of five all, so we, we've tied we've tied at the end of our five ends, then we have a shoot-off for closest to the middle. So they shoot one arrow each, and they shoot closest to the middle. If someone shoots a 10, someone shoots a 9, that's nice and easy, because the 10 will win, because it's the highest score. If they're both in the 10, then we look at who's closest to the... There's a very tiny cross in the middle of the target, face. And we look at who's closest to that. Sometimes it's easy to tell. Other times we have to measure it. But, um, but that's the job of the, the target judge when uh, we go to shoot off.
3: Wow. So I'm thinking there's one arrow to win a medal. Absolutely. That's Absolutely. millimeters difference.
1: Oh, oh, less than millimeters sometimes. But um, we, get, we get some occasions where it's too close to call. And if it's too close to call, then bye. Um, and then they'll shoot again
3: so you can't have any ties
1: as it's a as a edits, concluding so. yeah no no not, not within the within match play no someone will always will always win so but yeah so we so what we we've we've changed the rules recently or these have been changed recently so that now if if on the first shoot off they both score a 10 we shoot again just to build that excitement to build the pressure up a little bit so for first end we both shoot a 10 they they shoot shoot a second time and then the second end, if they both shoot a 10, we'll, we'll measure. But it's it's still that closest to the middle pressure on the athlete to actually win.
3: OK, I can already see that this is not the sport for me. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, it's brilliant. It's, it's really good. I mean, the match play system that's in now makes it really entertaining, really exciting. And there can be some nail-biting finishes when you've got the the, the elite on the line and that pressure suddenly dawns on them what they're actually shooting for.
2: So, what other changes have happened to make gameplay more exciting? Um, well, this is the, the match play has been in for a little while now. Um, okay. So, and
1: that's evolved over the time. So, we we did we had a system where we had just straight score. So it would be the um, five ends and highest score score wins, and then that's in fact what we do with our compound archers who don't shoot in the Olympics at the moment. But we have five ends, and it's for maximum score, and then they changed to the set system, and that allows athletes to come back if they if they have a if they have a bad shot or a bad end actually the set system allows them to come back because you'll you win an end you win the set you get two points and then the following end the other person may have a the bad end and you get your two points and it's not all down to total score so the set system has been brought in to make it much more viewer friendly and, and spectator friendly and i think it's worked
3: and it sounds like it moves very quickly
1: It does. It's really, really quick. Um, We have the system that we've got with the judges at the target. They're they're in a little hut behind the hoarding. Um, And as soon as the buzzer goes for the end of the time, they're out. They score the arrows and they're back. And it's about 30 seconds between that last arrow being shot and us being ready to shoot the next end. So it's not, not very long at all.
2: Do the athletes go and collect their arrows at the end of each end?
1: No, not at this level, not when we're at match play at this level. Uh, What happens is they have an agent that's at the target with the scoring judge or the target judge. And that scoring judge allows the agents to pull the uh, arrows out for for the athlete. And then they get sent back down to the target by what we call a runner, but somebody who's walking quickly from one end of the field to the other to take the arrows back. Okay, that's my job. <laughs> that's the that's the first job in this yeah. sport that I could
3: see that I can handle.
1: Oh yeah, yeah, that's a good. And, and you get then to hand the arrows to to all the Olympians on the podium as well. So as a as a runner, you you get right in there with the action.
2: Wow, that's really interesting. It's a very systematic.
3: Yeah, I'm getting Sorry, stressed thanks? out just listening. I said I'm getting stressed <laughs> out just.
2: Oh, listening.
3: It's, it's the it's, speed and the pressure. Um...
1: Yeah, it is and it is and I think that's why I like it because it is it's it's you know, it's high pressure situations. It's you've got to be on your game, you've got to be concentrating and you've got to perform. And it just makes it fun. It just makes it a really good day.
2: So talk to us a little bit about how you got involved in officiating and the road to Tokyo for you. Well,
1: road to Tokyo for me probably started in 2005, so about 15 years ago when a very good friend of mine who's also an international judge persuaded me and twisted my arm to become a judge in the uk and so i sort of ummed and about it i wasn't shooting as much as i had been because of the job i was doing so i was like you know what i want to stay involved in the sport so i'll give this judging malarkey a go signed up did the courses worked my way through the ranks that we had within the uk for the judging program and in 2007, took the the exams to become a continental exam for Europe and did a couple of events on the continent, for the continental. And then 2011, I was part of what they call the National Technical Officials for the 2012 test event, um, which then involved being on the field of play, doing sort of writing the scores down for 2012 Olympics. I then got upgraded and took the exam to become a full international judge, where I took on more responsibility at shoots, did ran other world championships. I've run a number of those since 2012, different forms of archery, and obviously established myself as uh, someone who's pretty reliable and can be counted on to to run the Olympics.
2: Did you have to apply for Tokyo or just because you are the level of judge you are, you're kind of already in the bucket to be selected?
1: No, you have to apply. Each year, uh, World Archery, the judge committee, send out a list of the events that they need to supply judges for, and you you write down and apply for the ones that you're available for. So last year, for 20, 2019, you ticked the box as to whether you would be available for the test event, which I did and got selected for the test event, um, and we took part in the test event as a team. And as a result of that, they, they assessed our performances, ensured that we were operating at the right level, and we've been appointed this year for the actual Olympics.
3: Okay, so tell me what that moment was like when you found out.
1: Oh, uh, there are days it's still not real. You dream of being at the Olympics. Um, when I first started archery as a kid, I dreamt of getting to the Olympics and being at the Olympics shooting wise that never materialized and, and probably won't but i've done it this way and i'm going to the olympics and it's it's just absolutely amazing it's like the olympics is the olympics isn't it? It, it it's the sporting event i've I've been chair of judges at other world championships and that's been absolutely amazing because that's my my sort of expertise in the in the field i'm running these events i'm, I'm enjoying it but then when they say the olympics it's like oh my That's the Olympics. I I still, I grin about it, Uh, people say about it, and I just grin from ear to ear. It's just, it's, it's, like I say, some days it's not quite real yet, but other days you get an email through, it's like, yes, it is. I'm going to the Olympics. Who was the first person you called? Who was the first one I called? I think it was my mum. I think my mum was the first person I told. And then my sister, because they've been right behind me ever ever since I started archery, my whole family have sort of, supported my archery so it was a case of you know they've got to know about this so so they did
3: are you ever just riding on the bus and you want to lean over and be like i'm going to be officiating at the olympics
1: (laughs) occasionally you hear conversations going on on the bus and you just think really but i'm going to be at the olympics (laughs) Um, but yeah, some, sometimes you just think, yeah, you just, like at work, you just want to shout it out, like, you yeah, know, I'm going to the Olympics, but it's really not appropriate to do it. So <laughs>
2: they'll, they'll find out soon enough.
3: I think it's completely appropriate. <laughs> what,
2: what do you, what do you do for your, your day job?
1: I'm a cop. I'm a police officer. So, yes. So That I makes me
2: love you even
3: more. <laughs> <I know. laughs>
1: Yeah, no, I'm a police officer at the moment I work um, in domestic violence, but I've I've worked on a traffic unit, so I've worked in collision investigation, um, and
2: now I'm in domestic violence.
1: But yeah, a cop oh, I'm a cop from day day to day.
2: An Olympic official by night.
1: hmm. Yeah, come home and plan it once I, when I get off duty. Superhero on both ends. Well, I don't know. I don't know that we get treated like a superhero when we're cops. Though you should. <laughs> yeah, possibly different on different sides of the of the pond but uh, over here we're not overly popular
2: So what do you have to do to prepare for the Tokyo event?
1: So I'm for that I'm lucky because we did the test event in
2: July last year so
1: I've been to the venue I've seen how the venue's set up I've seen um, and met the, the staff on the venue and the, the local organising committee so I know all of those and I know how they're working I've met all my judges. We worked as a team last time. So all I have to do this time really is to to take my notes and my preparation from there and, and tweak it slightly. So that will be in terms of who's on duty at what time, what judges are used for which part of the event, what duties each of those judges are going to have and make sure that I've got my judges in the right place at the right time, that they're fed, they're watered and refreshed and in a position that they can they can concentrate on and perform. That's, and that's my job, really, is to run that team and to make sure that works. Is the official language English for the judging team? Yes. Yes, it is. So it makes it like easy
3: for me. Really but, easy I ass- for me. Not- but I assume you not- have judges from non-English-speaking
1: countries. We do. We do. I've got, um, as I said, there's a team of about 12... 12- 12 judges and they're from all over the world so I've got judges of varying different languages um, who have throughout their career as an international judge developed their language skills as well because that's that's what they're used to that's what all the events are running in English so communication is quite straightforward We, we talk in English we talk about in archery terms we talk about what's going to happen and yeah, it's it's straightforward. Everybody knows what they're talking about because I've got a team of really experienced, really competent judges who are used to that kind of environment. So they're used to the language that we use. And yeah, it makes, makes my life easier.
2: So the test event was like a dress rehearsal for everybody. How did you prepare for the test event? Because you didn't know you were... Did you know that that was... If you did well there, the Olympics would be coming?
1: Yes, everybody okay. knew that. everybody knew that so it was it was in some ways that was that put more pressure on because you knew that you know the olympics was riding on this and and there were days you could feel that tension in the judges room and it and and i would take it as part of my job as the chair and as the the leader of the team to actually try and bring people back down and relax them because i need them to be focused on the task not on the future so we've got to we've got to be there in the moment in a nice relaxed state so that we can go out and perform as as a team, which we did. We had, we had a really good team. We had some really good meetings and some really good discussions. And, and as a team, we moved through the event. So it was, it was a lot of planning to work out how I was going to run different parts of the event, but also a, a big team effort to make sure that when everybody was out there, we all worked together. When you're thinking about
3: Tokyo, and the tournament what's something that keeps you up at night what do you feel like is the thing that can go wrong
1: I think one of the things we worry about is sort of just massive technology failure the sport is really quite depend dependent on the technology now with the timing systems and the devices that we've got on the field of play now whilst we can all cope with that it does focus the attention if the clock stop working if the lights stop working and how we quickly move from that element into sort of manual, sk- manual skills to run the run the event. We can all do it, but it's just those moments in time when you think, "Oh, now I've got to flick. Now I've got to think. This isn't part of the normal." So I think, yeah, the technology is it's absolutely sound and it and it works 99.9% of the time. But you know that at some point, if it goes, it's going to go, um, and it's going to go at the worst possible moment because. That's life. But, yeah, so I think it's that and, and making sure that everybody is aware of what they need to do if something does fail whilst we're out on the field of play.
3: And then on the, the happy end of that, what is the most exciting part of the trip to Tokyo for you?
1: I think it being Tokyo to start with, it's it's so far away and it's so such a different culture. It's being involved in that culture and, and for me, it'll be my first proper Olympics as an official. So the whole event, the fact that it is just Tokyo and um being part of that experience you know, being part of what creates our Olympic champions, it's just gonna be amazing. The whole the whole thing is just it just makes me grin from ear to ear when I think about it that, you know, this is the Olympics and we're gonna we're gonna be some massive part of it because if we weren't doing it, then the sport doesn't run. The sport needs the judges and we're as much a part of it as, as everybody else really.
3: Now, one thing I know with judging that would be terrible, I am not a judge. Jill does does officiating. I never could because I would start watching the event as uh-huh. an event. Do you ever find yourself, because somebody's performance is so extraordinary at that moment, having to really focus hard on being a judge and not a fan?
1: I used to because it, when you start judging, you, you suddenly you're involved with all the athletes and the names that you've, seen on scorecards you've seen them on the, t- of the tv you, you've heard of all these athletes and all of a sudden you're on the field to play with them so when I started it was really difficult not to get involved in oh my god that's on so oh my god oh wow it's so but now you're part of it you know you know the athletes to talk to you know who they are you've got a job to do and it's a lot easier now to you know stay focused on what you need to do <laughs> one of the funniest things is whenever i come back from world championships people ask me who won and i genuinely don't have a clue i couldn't tell you who wins the event if i've been judging at it or running it because i'm so tucked up with organizing running and focusing on the process i have absolutely no idea who won it but i think this year i might make a point of making sure i know who wins the olympics (laughs)
3: Well, there'll be the big ceremony afterwards, so you'll have a few minutes to catch up.
2: (laughs) Yeah,
1: just to have a look on the podium to see who won it.
2: How does the venue rate compared to some of the other venues, or what are some cool things about the venue at Tokyo?
1: Well, the venue is is purpose-built, so they've had a lot of work done to to build the stadium that we'll be in. So the qualification ranking round field is a purpose-built archery field with proper shelters and proper Building for our director of shooting and all the timing facilities and all the media, so that's all purpose built. So that's that's going to be a massive legacy for them out there with their sports field that's just for them. And then our finals field is it's, it's right in the it's sort of I want to say it's right in the centre of Tokyo, but it's in a part of Tokyo that's not the middle of Tokyo. So it's kind of in the it's in a suburb of Tokyo, but it's right in the middle. So it's not stuck out on the sticks where normally archery fields are in the middle of fields somewhere. It's actually in the middle of the city and and part of the city. So it's accessible for anybody. And I think that's really good because it means that the people can get there, that we can get the, the spectators in and out quite easily. And it's just a brand new venue to be to be working at, which makes it really nice.
2: I'm curious about when you have those moments when officials are stressed out or the tension is is ratcheting up. What or some of the techniques you use to calm people down and get them to just be in the moment and perform their best?
1: I think sometimes I revert to police officer mode because that's what I do for a living. You know, you calm people down to get the information out of them, to get the best out of them. And it's about supporting them as individuals, making sure they know that they've got some support from themselves, that they know that they're quite capable of it, and just bringing them down a little bit through a bit of... And, it, and it's through support, really, making sure that they know that someone's got their back and that they're not out there on their own. If necessary, if somebody gets particularly wound up and and is really struggling, give them a break, you know, take them off, give them a break, calm them down and then put them back on when they're ready to go. But I've not had to do that yet. I don't foresee having to do it in Tokyo, but it's about support and peer support and looking after each other. We've got a really stressful job to do, so... One of the things is I, I try and instill some kind of team spirit, so that we're all looking out for each other, and if there's an issue, we can spot it early on. I'm so excited for you, Hannah. I can't <laughs> even tell you. It's going to be amazing. It's going to be absolutely amazing.
3: I um, just I hear so. it in your voice, and that makes me so
1: happy.
2: <laughs>
1: yeah, it's, it's going to be good. It's going to be an absolutely amazing, uh, amazing trip.
2: When you you did the test event, what is your day like? Like, when do you start versus when does the, the event start? And when do you go home when after the event's over?
1: Okay, so we as the judge team are on the field an hour before the first match starts. So we will arrive by our transport. Um, we've got a meeting room where we will all sit down and have a meeting in. Um, and we will go through the schedule uh, and program for that day. I'll talk through... The, the matches that we're doing if it's a team matches or if it's a mixed team match or if it's the individual matches we'll look at making sure we get the scoring system right because it depends on the number of arrows that they're shooting so we need to make sure the adding up is um is. one end you're looking at 30s another end you're looking at te- um, 30s with one action shooting it another another match with the mixed team you're looking at 40s so you know you're adding up different numbers so it's about reminding the judges what the event is what the scoring is what the processes are where they should be on the podium because that can sometimes differ depending on what the event is so we look at that and we look at the routes that they're going to take to and from the shooting line and just generally run through everything almost sort of teaching them to suck eggs level but it's that reassurance isn't it so that Everybody knows what everybody else is doing and they've all had it reminded to them what they're they're going to be doing. So they know that they're doing the right thing. And then we crack on with the day between myself and the deputy the evening before we will have looked at the list of matches that we've got and assigned the judge to the match. Because what we don't want is a judge from America judging an athlete from America so we have to switch our judges around so that we have neutral judges on the line, and they'll get their target assignments, so or their match assignments, so they know which matches they're running, they can look through those, plan their session, and then any questions on what we're doing, really. And that's the morning meeting. That will take us up usually to about sort of half an hour before play starts or the first match. And then from there, we'll move into our positions. The target judges will go up to their, their base up near the targets, check that they've got the right equipment, check that the cameras are working, check that they've got target faces, check that they've got calipers, check that they've got everything that they need for their job. The same for those on the line. They'll check that all the markings are right, all right on the podium. My director of shooting will go and check all of his um, equipment to make sure all the sound's right, all the clocks are right, and myself and the deputy and the... Um, technical delegate or event director from World archery will generally check the field to make sure that the field of play is clear that there's nothing on the field of play that we don't want there up until about 15 minutes before and then we're all in position and ready to go because that's when the um the big media starts and uh, the big screen starts rolling and the uh, countdown to the session begins so that's that's first off end of the day everyone comes back quick debrief because everybody's absolutely shattered so we have a nice quick deep breath, pat on the back, sort out anything else that we needed to catch up on and um, go and eat because it's hungry
3: work. So you mentioned the media. So obviously the Olympics, there's going to be a lot more media that you have, even probably yes. at an Archery World Championships yes. how do, how, and, and a much bigger crowd. So how does that affect what you do?
1: Media, not so much. They've got a dedicated area to be in. So they're not on the field of play. As such, they're certainly not in front of the shooting line unless they're in a couple of we've got two hides, media hides, where we've got some big cameras. But the actual photographers are all in a confined space to the side so that they're safe. So they they're not so much on the individual matches. Uh, ranking round and qualification that we've got areas for them to be in, so they're quite close to the shooting line so they can see the athletes. That means that my judges have got to be a little bit more aware of who's who's around them and keep an eye on the shooting line a little bit harder is a bit keeping an eye on the shooting line is a little bit harder because you've got a few more people potentially in your way but other than that the media aren't an issue for us the crowd the crowd are going to make a noise we we love the crowds um it's becoming part of archery now is to have a crowd and we just have to make sure that we're watching everything that's going on as well as listening for the sound the the the, the timing system is all done with a sound buzzer that starts and stops um, when the clocks are running. So sometimes if there's a bit of noise, it makes it harder to hear the sound. But it's about being aware of what's going on around you, watching the clocks, watching the athletes, and then linking in with the show production if the music's too, t- too loud, if the DOS can't hear it, if the judge can't hear it, or if the athletes can't hear it because the athletes have to hear the sound. So it's about that communication and that teamwork just to make sure that everybody knows what's going on.
2: And then during the day, are you running around a lot or do you have like a position that you watch a match from? And
1: No, I, the, the less running around I do, the better. Um, if people see me running around, they'll, they'll know that there's something up. But I would generally spend my my, my tournament down the, the call room where the athletes come before they go to the field to play for their match or I'll be lurking between that call room and the side of the the field of play because should there be a problem everyone needs to know where to find me and that's where I'll be that's where the event director will be and if there's uh, what we call an appeal over a decision or a result the coaches need to know where to find me to to lodge that appeal so that's where I will be <laughs> that's where I'll be sort of lurking for the for the duration so I'll have prime viewing spot of the the field we'll see everything that goes on would also be able to maintain an overview of the event and sort of dive anywhere if I need to.
2: What sort of things can athletes appeal?
1: So they can appeal the result. Um, they can appeal a, 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 basically any judge's decision. So if other than the the value of an arrow, they can't judge um, appeal that and they can't appeal a yellow card decision, but they could appeal anything else. So for example, they could appeal that their opponent shot out of time or, they could appeal the sanction that happened if, if, for example, a team shot out of time and the judges made a decision in relation to the scores of those arrows and those arrow values. They can appeal those arrow values and that, that decision. They could appeal if they believe that somebody is wearing the wrong clothing. They could appeal if they believe someone was stood in the wrong place. Mostly it's about the result of a match or uh, the scoring following an incident that's happened that they will appeal so then if that comes through we have our jury um who will decide on the outcome of that appeal as to which way the the result goes
3: what's a yellow card
1: so the yellow card that was that time penalty that we talked about when um crossing the line too early or with the quiver uh, arrow out of the quiver so if the team if the athlete crosses the line before their their teammate has come back the judge raises the yellow card and calls the the team name, at which point the athlete that's gone to the line has to come back over the one-metre line and start all over again. So they get that time penalty. And the reason they can't appeal that is because we can't go back. We can't go back and do it again. There's no way of, of correcting or changing uh, that decision, so that, that decision stands.
2: How long does somebody have to appeal? Do they have to do it right away? So
1: they have to tell us that they're going to appeal within five minutes of the end of the match. And that time is noted up at the targets when the when the score is confirmed. So they've got five minutes from that point to tell us that they're going to go into appeal, and then they've got a further ten minutes to actually write and lodge the appeal to to me. And then from that point on, I'll inform the relevant parties, and the decisions will get made by the jury as to what the outcome will be.
2: How long does the jury process usually take? Oh, that can vary. That okay. that can vary. Um, it
1: really depends on what the issue is. I've had jury decisions take a matter of minutes. Um, I've had jury decisions take up to sort of an hour while they debate and talk to everybody involved. So it really depends on what the issue is that's been, that's been appealed um, and how many people there are to talk to about it and what information they need to discuss.
3: So when we are watching Tokyo on television, we do not want to see you because if we see no. you, that means something's going wrong.
1: That's exactly right. I shall be lurking in the background and hopefully stay there.
3: Because we'll want to see you now because you're now our friend. But we <laughs> yeah. don't want to see you because that means something's going wrong.
1: Yeah. Well, I, I, you, know, you may well see us lurking in the background somewhere, but hopefully I won't be on the field of play because if I get that far and I'm on camera, then it's, it's all gone a bit wrong. But but no, I, you'll see us on the pictures lurking in the background. So I, I shall be there.
2: Is there anything else that TV viewers should look for in an archery match. That's really interesting.
1: I think what gets, I think what gets quite exciting is when the athletes take their time. They've only got twenty seconds to shoot their arrow, and some of them take their time, and it gets right down to the wire, and that's quite interesting. And and you can you can almost see some athletes deliberately shooting slower, and some shooting quicker to try and sort of affect the opponent and put them out of their own process and their own own rhythm that's quite interesting but also from a judging point of view i mean we don't you don't see it on the tv quite so much but look at what the target judge is doing because nobody ever sees that and the target judge is actually really busy looking at the arrows scoring the arrows checking that the arrow values are right but yeah just just see what's going on down at the target end because that sometimes could be quite as interesting as what's going on at the shooting end so if they do show it on the tv keep an eye out for that but no i don't, i like the new way the system works and it's it's good it's it's good T V. Okay,
3: Excellent. now I have the most important question. Sure. Have you ever have you ever gotten hit?
1: Have I ever been shot? Yeah. No, no, no. No. <laughs> no. We've been up by the targets when they've missed the target and they've hit the backboard, but because the target judges are, are to the side, that doesn't it doesn't hit you. So no. None of none of my judges at an event have been shot yet. That's because I haven't <laughs> been there shooting arrows. <laughs> That's why
3: they keep me away from weaponry of any kind.
1: Uh, well, you see, there's a have-a-go. There'll be a have-a-go in Tokyo. So anybody that's actually at Tokyo that wants to have a go, can come along and have a go. Um, wait,
2: wait a different. second. Wait, there's a... W- tell me about this have-a-go thing.
1: So there'll be, there'll be the opportunity to have a go at shooting arrows at targets at Tokyo. Within the venue somewhere is a have-a-go, which will be run by the locals. Um, I believe it's a local Japanese club. We'll be putting on the event so that people can come along um, and be shown how to use bows and arrows um, and shoot a, a target a lot shorter than what we'll be shooting at but have it a go at archery nonetheless
2: oh that is that's exciting well because so uh, when we for tokyo for our coverage allison will be in the states i will be in tokyo and my Especially my husband along then well my <laughs> we we have tickets for a couple of different archery days so and oh. and my husband shoots So he will be very excited to have a go.
1: (laughs) Well, if you're coming along to have a go and you've got tickets to the archery, you'll have to come and say hello, won't you?
2: I, oh, you better believe it. We might make fools of ourselves. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you'll have groupies, you'll have yeah. Hannah. Yeah, no, that's I, all I can do with groupies. I, I know to cheer for the officials.
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah. Good cause they call, Judge. The, yeah, they get introduced at the beginning of the match and everybody is just really quiet when the judge gets introduced. So, so let's that, have well, some that. judges groupies.
3: Not on the days that Jill is there. Yeah,
1: yeah, you'll, you'll uh, know. Absolutely yeah, yeah. not. No, that'll be true. It's like, ah, there
2: she is. She's over there. Oh, you will know when I'm there, Hannah. You will oh, know. Brilliant. brilliant. Uh-huh. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining us. This has been fantastic. We're so excited for you. Yeah. Thank you so much, Hannah. I loved talking with her
3: she was great and i know nothing about archery as it was so obvious the only time i've ever tried archery we talked about it last year for olympic day where Mm -hmm. i was away and i shot the dinosaur Uh it was one of those sort of archery games where you shoot (laughs) these giant paper mache things and i'm like oh cool i got the dinosaur we'll eat for a month um so it was really great. To talk. She broke it down so simply and didn't make me feel stupid because she's my cousin.
2: There you go. There you go. You. Yeah. Well, you've got to tune in this time because it's fun to watch. It really is, and I know. it's it's so exciting because a the traditionally for for a long long time the South Koreans have been like the juggernaut of competitors in this competition, and they always had the best hats. I, I got. They say, do. They, I've they seen the those best hats. hats. So love watching them for that they are just so cool and like calm and collected on the range and they just are so consistent so it's been really fun however it's been fun to watch other countries and other athletes come up in the ranks and i think this if I remember correctly, I don't have this in front of me, but there's probably going to be some very different nations in the tournament that have really good hopes of winning medals. So it's going to be a lot of fun to watch archery this year. And we have even more fun because we can watch the background of our televisions and look for Hannah.
3: It'll be like a Where's Waldo of the <laughs> archery competition. So if you
2: spot Hannah when you're watching archery. You got a tweet about it. Saw Hannah right, come right. out. Oh, no, there's a disaster on the right. archery range. Well, I know what you're going to do first. You're going to wave to the TV.
3: I am. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do it every time. So this week is two years since Pyeongchang and two years to Beijing. And now that you say that, that whole opening ceremony of Pyeongchang, I was waving that Laura me. And I know when we're watching Tokyo, I'm going to be waving and whatever event you're at. Mm hmm that I know if I'm watching it live, I'll be waving at the TV looking for you in the stands. And and if people tell me they're going to certain events, I'll be mm-hmm. looking for them in the stands. And so everybody know I am waving at you, <laughs> wherever you
2: are. We'll wave back, we'll TV. start waving yes, back.
3: Wave back, just figure I'm there.
2: Alrighty. I wanted to let you know, I've been on Pin Collector this week. Again, pincollector.com, the home for pin collectors where you can buy, sell, and trade pins and manage your pin collection. And I know there's a lot of Olympic pin collectors out there. So um, I've been having a lot of fun playing with my collection this week and uh, got some stuff displayed at home, putting more pins on the site. It's a lot of fun. So it's also fun to see what other people have. And if you're on the site, let me know. It's at pincollector.com. So you know what it's time for? It's time for our Team Olympic Fever update. <clears> Tofu. <throat> oh my gosh. It's been a busy week for Team Olympic Fever. First off, Nike staged a huge runway show in New York City on February 4th to unveil the Team USA uniforms. And they're all made from 100% recycled materials this year, which is inter- plays into the Tokyo sustainable philosophy for Ed these Camp games. Camp would be proud of them exactly but who was one of our models for the show Diana price that was she so looked, exciting she looked beautiful oh oh she is she is so beautiful and so photogenic and she's so happy she had like if you go to her insta page she was having such a blast at the show and it was it was really fun i'm really glad she got that opportunity
3: what did you think of the uniforms
2: i think they look fine they, they look kind of generic in a sense. They're red, they're white, they're blue. They say USA on them.
3: I had the same exact reaction. Just, okay, I'm not going to remember these five minutes from now.
2: Right. right. But you know
3: whose uniforms I am going to remember five minutes from now? Whose? Greece.
2: Oh, yeah. Let's, let's dive. I mean, we've got more Team Olympic Fever update, but like, we. well, wait, no. Let's get the okay. Team Olympic Fever update. Finished. Yeah, yeah, you're right. We you're got right. we got stuff to talk about uniform wise. So many uniforms have come out, and we've got thoughts. So, <laughs> Team Schuster is competing in the USA Curling National Championships, and as of Tuesday night, they were six and zero going. Yeah, I know they're really kicking some tournament play there. Very excited for our Team Olympic Fever member John Schuster and his team. So hopefully they will be able to do a clean sweep.
3: Oh, really? Yep. I'm just jealous I didn't come
2: up with that. <laughs> this weekend is the International Skating Union World Single Distances Speed Skating Championships, and that will be in Utah at the Utah Olympic Oval on the 13th through the 16th. And our Team Olympic Fever member, Aaron Jackson, should be competing there. So Excellent. Very excited for her. Hope she has a good meet. Also competing starting this weekend is Claire Egan. She will be at the biathlon world champs, which take place February 13th through the 23rd in Antolz, Antarselva, which is in the Italian Alps. It's really beautiful there. Some news from Laura Wilkinson, our team Olympic Fever Diver. She competed for the first time since 2017. And we know we said a few weeks ago that she was at a competition, she was at like national indoors, but she ended up needing to withdraw from that. And so this past week, she competed at the 2020 Orlando All-Star Invitational and she won first place for the platform diving, the senior women. So congratulations, she said, and, and you can see on her Instagram, she had a whole bunch of uh, videos of her dives. And she said, they're not great, but, I got to compete again i'm so happy about that it was a great time and it's great to see her back on the platform
3: absolutely
2: and i saw this press release laura is also going to be a guest mentor on a show called all-round champion which is going to air on byutv which is i think there's cable but they do stream it at byutv.org and according to the press release from uh, byutv all-around champion is featuring 10 of North America's most decorated young athletes who compete in the ultimate competition in sports like wakeboarding, gymnastics, and skateboarding. The catch is that they won't be competing in their own sport. They'll be competing in each other's. That'll be interesting. So eventually huh. one athlete will be crowned the all round champion. And Laura Wilkinson is one of the guest mentors on the show
3: this just seems like a recipe for injury though
2: i know well you know if you and i were competing (laughs) (laughs) that's true but it could it could be very interesting so we'll have to tune into that let's move on to some tokyo 2020 news okay back to uniform talk team greece came out with their uniforms
3: yes and i think it looks like if a nun went to Studio 54 in 1978. (laughs) And I love every inch of that uniform.
2: I know. It was funny because it came across my newswires and I sent it to you because I said, this cannot wait. (laughs) And I needed to know immediately what you thought. And you just said back Studio 54.
3: It's this fantastic pleated skirt with these amazing colors. It's going to look great when they're moving. Mm Mm-hmm when they're doing the the march in and i hope some of them twirl because i bet that skirt is just going to look amazing in a twirl
2: so yeah this pleated skirt looks like it's about knee length or t length or just below the knee or so so it's going to be very flowy and it kind of looks like there's a mountain range to me it looks like there's the mountains of greece on the skirt but they're in like blues or it's a watercolor It's mountains or it's a watercolor type pattern of the blues of Greece. And then there's a white jacket over it for the women and the men have uh, blue suits. It will be interesting. I also think it's going to be dated. I think we're going to find a lot of uniforms in the, the 2020 Parade of Nations that in 10 years we're going to go, ooh, those were some fashion choices.
3: But they always are like that. There are almost no Parade of Nations outfits that really hold up over the test of time. I mean, you go back to those 80s winter ones, especially.
2: Oh, like the U.S. ones with the big fringe? The
3: puffy jackets jackets and the fringe. I don't think any of them hold up as timeless fashion choices. And you know what? I don't think they should. I think they absolutely should be a product of their time. Okay, I like that because it says, "Oh, this was 2020. This was what was happening then."
2: All right, all right. And it
3: was, it was the nuns were going to Studio 54 in pleated skirts.
2: <laughs> but speaking of a product of their time, the Japanese also released their uniforms. They have two uniforms, and I got to say, this came out at the same time as the technical officials' uniforms. So of course, we totally do, do missed it because we were <laughs> know, worried about the technical te- officials. Exactly, but. The opening ceremony uniform is a play on the one they had from 1964. So oh. the women will have long white skirts or it could be culottes. It kind of looks like it could be one of both. And the men will have red pants and they will have white blazers. So it's Which kind is of a... the
3: opposite color palette of 64, but very yes. similar shapes.
2: Yes, exactly. So that's really interesting to have that throwback. And then they have a, a second uniform for formal events that they have to attend and that is white bottoms with a navy blazer and a red based tie or scarf that's got a pattern on it so very classy
3: and they'll be very hot
2: they might they might. They also look lightweight everything looks like it's been lightweight
3: i am definitely a little concerned with all these opening ceremony outfits that all have blazers
2: maybe somebody's gonna have some interior cooling elements or maybe they're wicking clothes
3: i don't know (laughs) wicking i don't want to wear anything that wicks that just sounds nasty
2: (laughs) moving on japan is improving the public toilets this i'm very excited about as i will be hopefully personally getting to use this some of the public restrooms are going to be upgraded like at narita international airport and there's a, a rest stop just outside tokyo The toilets will have features that can track your pulse to determine if you're too tired and need to take a break before you get back on the road if you're driving.
3: Well, okay. So the the toilets are being manufactured by the Japanese toilet maker Toto. Mm -hmm. I happen to have a Toto toilet in my house. Yes. And I do say it is my favorite toilet. Oh, how come? I just think it's a lovely toilet. It's very comfortable and it's Works so well, and I never have a problem with it. So I would trust that toilet to tell me if I was tired.
2: The toilet technology in Japan is impressive. Yeah, that is the the toilet
3: could probably drive for you.
2: (laughs) And then for the Paralympic Games, Tokyo has announced that there are going to be many flame festivals that are held alongside the Paralympic torch relay. So at each event, a flame is going to be lit as part of a lighting ceremony and taking to local sightseeing spots, according to inside the games. So it's kind of a complex event. So they'll have departure ceremonies. They're going to have relays in Tokyo, Tokyo. Uh, Shizuoka, Chiba, and Saitama, those are where the Paralympic events will be held. So they'll have relays, and then all of those relay flames will be brought together into a single flame in Tokyo on 21st of August.
3: That sounds amazing. Mm -hmm.
2: And then those flames will be joined by a heritage flame, which will be lit in Stoke Mandeville in Britain, where the Paralympic movement was born.
3: Oh, I love the symbology. Mm -hmm. I think that's brilliant. Mm
2: -hmm. And then that one flame will tour Tokyo for a few days until the opening ceremonies on the 25th. That'll be really cool. You know,
3: everything with Tokyo with the flame, the torches and the, has been beautiful. So this does not surprise me that they would come up with such a beautiful way to incorporate all these different sites and the history of it and all the symbols and I'd probably cry. Not that that is really a gauge.
2: <laughs> it's a given. Come on. We <laughs> just need this... to create like a cryometer for, for the two of us, like, right, it's level sort of like atmosphere.
3: you know, tear trickling to mm-hmm. ugly sob, right? You know, eyes welling up to, mm-hmm. you know, ugly cry. This I think might make me ugly cry. In the it might. It might. Oh my gosh. Yeah. beautiful. It's going to be a beautiful moment.
2: We have a little update on our marinovella. I feel
3: exciting. like I should have a sound for the Marinovela. I know, I
2: know, but it, it's I'm not sure how many more episodes are left.
3: But <laughs> I feel like going to be like Camella, no! There's something <laughs> I don't know what they do in telenovelas, <laughs> but there's just a lot of, you know, staring and yelling at each other.
2: So, according to inside the games again, the Tokyo 2020 has announced the refund process for people who bought tickets to watch the marathon.
3: And is it at a marathon?
2: Kind of. So if you had a ticket for the marathon, that was, you had a stadium seat because usually you could watch the, the marathon on the streets for free. For the men's marathon, it's simple because that was the only event in the stadium at that time, the women's race was supposed to finish during a full session of athletics events. So that was just one portion of your ticket. So you would go get a ticket, you'd see a bunch of athletics events, and oh, the women's marathon finish was included with that. Uh, inside the game says fans affected by this can opt to receive a full or partial refund on what they paid.
3: So if you've got a marathon ticket, mm-hmm. it sounds complicated. They really made everything complicated with this marathon.
2: Right. If you have tickets, you should have received an email about how to apply for a refund. Okay. Yeah, right. That's probably a very painful part of the process and figuring out like how do you have to deal with this logistically what's left over in Tokyo
3: and I remember when you were buying tickets there were all those additional fees Mm -hmm. the shipping fee and the purchase fee are those getting
2: refunded don't know because if that was the only ticket you bought maybe but if you bought several tickets for several events well you're still getting those so does that incorporate all those other fees as well I don't know I would say it'd be interesting to see, but I doubt we'll know much about that. Actually, if you if you have tickets to the marathon, or if you had tickets to the Tokyo part of the marathon, and you're going through this process now, let us know what it's like. Yeah. And oh, let's wrap this up today. With, since we're in a novella, oh Paris, Paris. <laughs> I love this story so much, and I know we're using Inside the Games a lot today, but uh, Michael Pavitt was writing for Inside the Games. Paris had an event called Global Sports Week, and speaking at it was Paris 2024 president Tony Estanguet. I, hopefully I pronounced that name kind of close, but he was talking about how the best guarantee of waves for the surfing competition are going to be in Tahiti. So that's that's where they get the Tahiti. but. The quotes in this article are fantastic. So this is a quote. As you know, we chose surfing, which will be completely validated by the IOC by December 2020. And our proposal for the venue, if confirmed, is Tahiti. It is a French wave and the most spectacular wave. It is also the guarantee that the competition will will be able to organize. I'm guessing there was a B in there. And it was pretty impressive that... He's so confident about Tahiti being approved because it's it's the best way. It will wave. be, a, it's,
3: it it's will a, be French. a French wave, and it will be the most spectacular wave. It will be magnifique. <laughs> what I love is that he specifically said that the waves in Tahiti are French.
2: I know. I love that. Like, what, what French- is a French wave? I, it, <laughs> does it does it do it with its tongue like a French kiss? <laughs>
3: <laughs> I, I i don't understand what a french wave is but whatever it is i am all for it
2: oh man but like here's another element to this story is that world rowing wants to propose coastal rowing as another discipline at paris 2024 and coastal rowing involves you you row along a coast and then out into sea so that makes competition a little more tougher i think because you're dealing with waves more because a lot of the rowing just takes place on a canal or very closed course so that they're typically not competing with the elements as much but this is the event that really kind of is designed for the elements and where would they like to have it tahiti
3: because they would like the most spectacular french wave
2: i guess do you want french wave when you coastal row
3: i guess you do but you know what because paris has the choice of those additional sports that Mm -hmm. they could put in right and And finalize that program right if they get approved for tahiti then it would only make sense to have more than one event there
2: that makes sense on one level but then on another level it's like well how much of the games are you just going to move to tahiti well i'm going to go to the tahiti
3: portion of the games (laughs) i'm already getting you know measured for my coconut bra and my grass skirt (laughs) because i want to see the french waves
2: well, and they you'd don't... only have to see them. You'd only get them for a week because the proposal is that all 48 of the surfers that will be in the competition compete during the first week of the games, and then they can go back to Paris and spend the second week in the village. It'll take them a week to get back to the village. It's a 24 hour flight. Well, and, and depending on what the rest of their competitive schedule is like, like if they have to stay in that part of the world for more competitions do they want to deal with that amount of jet lag?
3: Well, it's all about the French waves.
2: C'est la vie.
3: Oh, French waves! (laughs) You are spectacular! (laughs) You are so beautiful! C'est bon!
2: That'll be a fun story to keep an eye on. We'll see what happens.
3: Au revoir, French waves! Oh! oh, oh. I don't know why the French waves sound like Pepe (laughs) Le Pew,
2: but... (laughs)
0: They do. Before they, do. they crash over you.
2: <laughs> 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 it's a good time for us to say au revoir as well. And that will wrap up the show for this week. Email us at olimfever
3: at gmail.com. Call our voicemail hotline at 53070-FEVER or Fever on Twitter and Insta and Olympic Fever Podcast Group on Facebook.
2: Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, keep the flame alive.
3: It's hungry work.